0: Episode 7, EB-5 superhero Ed Ramos, partner at KKTNP. victorious in the landmark John Case.
1: You're listening to the EB-5 Superheroes Podcast. Join host Matt Rush as he interviews the EB-5 industry's courageous men and women, leaders protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Go behind the scenes as our EB-5 superheroes tell their stories of triumph against adversity, paving a brighter future for EB-5. And now, financial engineer, industry expert, and EB-5 superhero, Matt Trush.
0: Welcome to the EB-5 Superheroes Podcast. I'm Matt Trush, your host. For those of us living in the EB-5 world, we've grown thick skin and learned to buckle up tight for the roller coaster ride we lovingly call EB-5. EB-5 is an incredible federal program that has brought tens of billions of dollars to the US economy, created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, and helped countless families legally immigrate to the US. But it's been a bumpy ride, to say the least. There have been cases of fraud, swinging pendulums of regulatory uncertainty, unnecessarily long processing times, program sunsets and even twilight. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. EB-5 can once again become the best and fastest and most stable letter combinations in the alphabet of US immigration paths. EB-5 can regain its highly competitive position versus other countries' immigration investment programs. EB-5 is poised to navigate America out of another economic downturn. Now is the time, more than ever, for the good guys and good gals to make the dream a reality again for those who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. Meet the EB-5 superheroes who are on the front lines of making positive change. The courageous leaders who are shaping the course of EB-5 for good and triumphing against Adversity. Get the inside scoop, hear their stories, learn from real life successes and failures. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Join me in welcoming EB5 superhero Ed Ramos, partner at KKTMP, Victorious in the landmark John Case. Ed Ramos, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on.
0: ev 5 superheroes are industry leaders like you who are out protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Ed, let me brag about you a bit. Ed got his law degree from the top school, Yale Law School, and was awarded the Stephen J. Massey Prize as the student who best exemplifies in work on behalf of clients and other community service the values of the law school's clinical program. Ed joined kkt as a Yale Public Interest Fellow and since concentrates primarily on immigration-related litigation before federal courts, as well as litigation in immigration court and before the Board of Immigration Appeals. Ed received his bachelor's degree in history from Amherst College and following taught English in Hokkaido, Japan from 2008 to 2009. Ed speaks conversational Japanese and Spanish and the KKTMP partners Ira Kurzman and John Pratt attest that Ed Ramos is the firm's real EB-5 superhero. So tell me, Ed, with such a background, Amherst, Yale Law School, Stephen J. Massey Prize recipient, trilingual in English, Japanese and Spanish, how did you become such a part of this EB-5 superhero team who successfully litigated the Landmark John case. Well,
2: it's kind of funny that you you mentioned that, Matt, because I, I kind of fell into EB5. Um, I started, as you noted just now, uh, with the firm as a public interest fellow. And so I was working on, when I first joined the firm, on completely unrelated issues involving immigration detainers and uh, policy work. But the firm kept me on after that first fellowship year. And a lot of the litigation that we do is EB5 related. And so I, when I started the firm, we were just finishing up what probably had to be the longest running EB5 litigation case, which is the Chang case. There was a 2003 decision out of the Ninth Circuit. That's one of the leading EB5 uh, decisions. But actually, that case continued through, I think 2013, it finally settled and everyone got their green card. So when I joined the firm, one of my first assignments was to help wrap up that case. So it's been a very fun journey. And EB5 has been a big part of it. So from the Chang
0: case to the John case, tell me about the Chang case. And why was it such a long standing case? And then how did that lead ultimately to your participation and leadership in the John case?
2: So I think a lot of your listeners probably know there are four precedent decisions in the EB-5 area. And those decisions really came out of what I think the promoters at the time would call creative uses of EB-5, but what the government viewed as abuses. There were a number of policy changes that were made as part of those, those four precedent decisions. And there was a group of investors that were kind of stuck after they had become conditional residents, but before they had, Remove the conditions at the IA29 stage. And the government tried to apply those policy changes to the investors that had already immigrated to the US. And so there was this huge question about whether those precedent decisions and the new policies that they basically announced could be applied retroactively to investors. And so the whole Chen case, although there's a bunch of nuances and complications, the whole Chen case kind of boils down to a single question, which is, is it fair for the government to do that kind of thing? And that that actually ties in with, with the Zhang case. I guess we're going to be discussing mainly today because the government has done this a number of times in the EV5 context. This is a theme that runs throughout USCIS's treatment of this program and immigration programs more generally, but it seems to be a, a particularly hot theme in the EV5 area.
0: So what were the four precedent cases uh, and what were their impact? And I guess Zhang is the last of those four.
2: So Zhang, that's a federal court precedent, but there are four okay. presidential decisions from the agency itself that the agency has issued that govern EV5. So that's Izumi, Sofichi. There are their four of them and they all cover slightly different topics within the EB-5 area. Azumi is really the main one, but they basically announced a number of changes. Well, the, the government didn't view them as changes, but effectively they changed the way that cases were being adjudicated in the EB-5 area. Because the reason
0: why the USCIS has had this, what can almost seem like arbitrary changes to policy, and then retroactively or not retroactively applying these cases. What is different about the USCIS and EB-5 that makes this seem to be such a capricious type of process?
2: Well, I think that I don't know what it is about EB-5 specifically that that seems to attract these these retroactive policy changes. But I think one thing that certainly may be happening is that USCIS sees some issue and focuses its attention on this particular issue. And then they quote, unquote, reinterpret the law. And they do it in a way that really breaks from existing practice in the ev5 area and I, I think maybe one of the reasons is that there are a number of practices that develop in an area business practices standard business practices that that just organically arise because it's successful and then people model that success and then when it pushes the boundaries of what's permitted even though it may become common practice uscis then focuses its attention on that particular area and then reinterprets the law in some way that that tries to prohibit it there isn't always some ground in the statute of the regulations. They may just not like the particular practice, and then they kind of go out and search for some rationale to justify it. And this may be jumping forward a bit, but that, that's sort of what animated the Zhang decision, I think, that they didn't like what was happening with the way investors were taking out loans to make their EB-5 investments, and then they sort of scoured the, the regulations for some justification for it, and then ultimately, it wasn't there.
0: So it sounds like there's policy, and then there's people, and the interpretation by those people of the policy. In the case of USCIS and these EB-5 investors, as the program and the process has been developing, they've been having some reinterpretations of existing policy that have had a very big impact on people's lives. In terms of the context of the John case, each EB-5 investor has to invest five hundred dollars or $900,000 depending on the time of the policy, to we'll say $500,000 per investor. And it has to be at risk throughout the sustainment period. And then they apply for their I-829 and that conditional green card becomes permanent. Right. Well, in that process, USCIS does an I-526 review, where they determine whether the source of funds are, are legal and legitimate. And then they also review the project. So, in the case of these investors who, well, we've got two investors at hand here in the, the John case, they took a loan from one of their companies that they controlled and they used those funds from the loan to invest in the EB5 program. So, this could be considered cash or it could be considered indebtedness, right? So, what happened along the way and why would the USCIS really care so much to split hairs on this question?
2: latter question, the last question, I'm not sure I can answer. That's the psychological question that if I knew the answer to, it would be a miracle. This is actually a very interesting case. And I think it illustrates some of the key principles that litigators look to when they're litigating an immigration case or an EB-5 case. I like to think of it as a hierarchy. There's a hierarchy of what the law is. And at base, the EB-5 law, it's a very simple law. There's two requirements. You create 10 jobs and you invest the minimum amount of quote-unquote capital. The statute uses the term capital. So then the question is, well, what is capital? It turns out the agency, actually the INS, Immigration and Naturalization Service, which is now USCIS. But one year after the EB-5 statute was enacted in 1990, in 1991, they defined the term capital as part of regulations that implemented the EB-5 program. And they defined the term capital very broadly to mean a number of different asset types. It means first and foremost, cash. And then there are actually, this is a little known fact, you can invest other types of assets, including equipment. If you start a farm, you can contribute $500,000 worth of tractors. And that could be cows. cows. (laughs) Inventory, other tangible property. I guess cows would fall in the other tangible property category. Cash equivalents. And then the the kicker is the one that you just mentioned, which is indebtedness. Indebtedness is the only form of capital that comes with some, some caveats or comes with some extra requirements. And the key extra requirement in the regulation is that if you invest indebtedness, the indebtedness has to be secured by assets that are personally owned by the investor. The language is the indebtedness has to be, quote, secured by assets owned by the alien investor, provided that the alien investor is personally and primarily liable. I was just discussing those, those four precedent decisions. If you if you fast forward a bit to 1998, those precedent decisions interpreted indebtedness in a very particular way. They interpreted indebtedness to mean a relationship between the investor and the new commercial enterprise, not a third party lender or anything. Just what that relationship was, was a promise to pick. I'm an EB5 investor. I want to get my green card. Instead of dumping $500,000 of cash into a new commercial enterprise, I will give you a promissory note. I'll give you a, a piece of paper that says, I'm good for the 500,000, but I don't have it now. I'm going to give it to you in one year or two years or five years or seven years or some complicated arrangement over the course of time. That promissory note is what the agency understood indebtedness to mean. And in that context, yeah, it makes sense. You know, If you're going to make a promise to pay the, the, the company, the, the new commercial enterprise, rather than coughing over hard, cold cash, you better have assets that back up that promise. Uh, and that's how indebtedness was interpreted for many, many years. And that interpretation did not encompass cash loans. If I borrow from a third party, from my parents, let's say, that's a common arrangement. If a parent gives their child half a million dollars to make an EV5 investment, excuse me, not gives, if they lend half a million dollars to their child. That is not indebtedness. That the child receives $500,000 of cash proceeds, and those cash proceeds are cash, not indebtedness. And those restrictions on the use of indebtedness that come from the regulation were not interpreted to apply to cash obtained from a third-party loan. Well, Ed, let me um, explain. As somebody
0: who was intimately involved in EB-5 for the years prior to this landmark Jung decision, we all would bend over backwards to provide security for those personal, loans, whether it was parents lending to children or a person himself who was applying, taking out a loan from a third party, because the USCIS had uh, come up with this, uh, what we thought was a strange interpretation, but there's nothing we could do about it because they were sending RFEs and denials based on the fact that these weren't secured loans. Everybody had to demonstrate that these personal loans or even bank loans that they were taking out to come up with the cash to invest in the project had to be secure. Right. And so we in the industry had to play along with USCIS, otherwise, you know, for fear that we would be rejected. The investor would be denied right. a few years later. So once we started these denials, these RFEs over this issue about needing security for these loans that would become cash that would become vested, we all were bending over backwards to try to accommodate the USCIS. And it really made things very, very difficult for, for many investors. Now, fast forward, I think that's what happened with the client, with John, the, right. the Japanese um colleague here. They were both denied based on the fact that they had taken out these loans, but these weren't secured. And according to the interpretation that we you're describing it, which is post-fact, they were describing the fact that a loan that would become cash would need to be secured or this indebtedness need to be secured. So what did you argue to clarify that definition?
2: Our argument was very simple. I mean, there's a lot of nuances, a lot of complications, but it all boils down to a simple argument, which is the regulation says capital means cash. And An agency is bound to follow the terms of a regulation. It can't interpret a regulation to mean something that the regulation doesn't. And the regulation says capital means cash. The government tried to complicate things by saying, no, well, capital, cash from a third-party loan isn't cash, it's indebtedness. And our argument was, no, indebtedness means something different. It means this totally separate type of arrangement. It's a promissory note, not cash from a third-party loan. And therefore, the, the, the restrictions from the regulation that apply to indebtedness don't apply to cash from a third-party loan. And ultimately, the court agreed with us. There's been a movement in the past, you know, I would say 20 to 30 years called textualism that says, look, you follow the plain language of a statute or regulation. And ultimately, the agency here was held to that standard.
0: Just in summary, what I was describing uh, prior to the Jung decision was that we all in the industry had to help the investors' clients come up with a a security for their loans if they were using a loan to fund the cash to invest in the project. And after the John decision, you demonstrated, according to the text and the, the meaning of the policy, the plain meaning of the policy, that cash doesn't require security. and indebtedness would, but this uh, investment that's coming from a loan is is cash. It's not necessarily a, a secured in- indebtedness, if you will. And therefore, all the jungs of the world who had been denied, maybe going back to the beginning, and I'll ask you about that question, going back to the beginning of time who had been rejected over this new interpretation of these loans needing to be secured, have a potential for being overturned. So how far back does this have an impact on EB-5 investors going backwards and then going forwards? How will how will this impact the USCIS EB-5 adjudication process going forward?
2: So that, that's a great question. So the easy answer is that it, it doesn't go back to the beginning of time. It goes back six years from the date of the lawsuit that we filed. And that sounds very random, but there's, there's a reason for it, which is there's a six-year statute of limitations. We call it a statute of limitations. It means there's a six-year period you have to file a lawsuit against the United States um, if you've been wronged by an agency, uh, and that that six-year limit runs from the date of the decision. There's a there's a part of the the district, uh, excuse me, the the circuit court opinion that gets into the weeds of this. But basically, the circuit court interpreted the lower court's decision to only cover six years from the date of the lawsuit. So I don't have the date in front of me, but it's in it's in the opinion. So anyone who has issued a a, a, a denial after that date is co- Covered, and so that it runs from that date all right, the way so- to the current to the current time, and and, and presumably for the future as well. And, and USCIS has changed its policy manual now to reflect that change. Oh, they, is that right? When did they, that they, they just updated the they issued an announcement about three or four weeks ago, I think, um, announcing that they 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 changed the policy manual to eliminate that those requirements on about indebtedness and loans um, as a result of, of, of the decision.
0: That's a real triumph. That's a real success. I think after the court case and the victory in court, everyone was still walking on eggshells wondering, is USCIS going to change their policy manual and really own up to this loss in court? And it looks like they, they finally um, bit the bullet and uh, did the right thing and uh, have changed their policy manual, which means that there won't be any jungs anymore. The question I had about statute of limitations is six years I think it was argued in in the appeal that you know even though this went to court in 2015, really this is something that had that had gone back you know much earlier. And just you know, should we really take six years uh, and go back only from the date of the court case? Is that really fair? On the other hand, so you know, six years back from 2015 is 2009. Mm-hmm. I wonder if anyone uh, went back to see how many cases were actually filed and denied prior to 2009, based on this issue of um, needing security for these loans. I don't know if there were many of them. Did you ever research that question?
2: There are very few cases from 2009 and earlier. The government cited a couple of them, but none of them were dispositive. So there are a couple of unpublished AAO decisions going back to the early 2000s that the government was able to dig up, but they all involved other problems as well. There was no decision where the only issue was this loan proceeds issue. You
0: brought up an important point about the definition of that class, that do we say that It's anyone who was rejected for this um, secured loan issue plus other things, or is it really limited to, let's say, a Zhang, who that was the only reason, the sole reason for his being rejected. Is that easy or difficult to prove um, someone who received a denial based on only one issue?
2: So you're right. The class covers only people that were uh, denied for the sole reason. The district court caught that and added that into the class definition. It it should be relatively easy to um, figure out if you're a class member or not. Because if you if you look at the denial and you see that USCIS is classifying a loan as indebtedness, then that's that's the flashing red light that says that you know this is covered by the by the court decision. As a practical matter, I we're not really aware of very many cases at all from before 2015, because 2015 is when they made this policy announcement as part of a stakeholder call. They used to have these like sort of quarterly stakeholder calls where they would get on the phone with uh with EB5 lawyers and investors and regional centers and they would provide updates and as part of one of these updates they you know dropped this announcement that you know they're they're now classifying the, the proceeds of loans as as indebtedness and then going back two or three months before that we found out after the fact that they were issuing hundreds of RFEs to people on this issue so it's pretty clear that they there may be a couple of isolated cases from before you know 2015 but as a practical matter most of these cases came after to the the policy announcement
0: so there's no real need to to fight that fight going back prior to 2009, because really the main cases, it sounds like there was a sort of a leader inside um, who made a, a decision, an interpretation, and that affected, you know, let's say hundreds of new interpretations of this uh, application of the secured indebtedness versus cash issue. And so pretty much around that time, as soon as it got announced, when they started to apply that new interpretation. exactly Something very interesting Let's fast forward, you know, you were successful in, in court with Zhang, um, with the Zhang uh, appeal, and now it's gotten into the policy book. I have seen recently that there are American companies that let's say it was nine hundred thousand dollars for the investment amount. They'll loan you four hundred fifty thousand dollars. You come up with the other half, an unsecured loan, so that you can go ahead and do EB five. And there might be some uh, who would even lend you nine hundred thousand dollars. So, what do you think about that uh, concept of now this becoming um, you know a loan business for Americans to loan unsecured funds at high interest rates to EB five investors? So
2: obviously, I have to preface my answer with with a with a disclaimer that you know not, can't comment on specific fact patterns, but in general, the clear takeaway from the the court decision is that the cash proceeds of a loan are cash. And so this caveat about indebtedness needing needing to be secured by assets that are personally owned by the investor doesn't apply to the cash proceeds of a third party loan. The major, major caveat I would add to that is that the decision does not affect the separate requirement that all forms of capital must be lawfully acquired. So the investor always has to prove that whatever money they're investing or whatever assets they're investing, that they acquired them both directly and indirectly from lawful sources. And that comes straight from the text of the regulation. And so if there are unsecured loans or loans that are not fully secured by the investor's assets, the investor needs to be prepared to prove to USCIS that this was a a legitimate business transaction. And we know that you, CIS they they came up with this whole loan proceeds policy because for whatever reason, they didn't like this idea of investors getting unsecured loans or undersecured loans. They were trying to find some grounding in the regulations or the statute to do it. That got struck down by the court. But if I had to guess, I would say they would probably view these cases with an extra pair of eyes, you know. And so investors just need to keep that in mind and be prepared to to show that everything that they've done is, has been done lawfully and that all and that the source of the funds is lawful.
0: Right. EB five is is probably the most scrutinized investment uh, program in the United States real estate or or businesses that that's out there. There are so many other cross-border transactions that happen, investment companies investing in real estate or otherwise that have absolutely no scrutiny about where the lawful source of funds are coming from. This is bringing tens of billions of dollars to the United States with um, arguably, you know, very talented investors and immigrants. And all of these funds that are coming in have been scrutinized first by their immigration attorney, second through the USCIS. They're also going to do all the OFACs and all of their checking that everything is being done just right. So really the EB-5 program is the only program that I know of that is, is putting this really high level of scrutiny on the legal source of funds. Now that being said, we've all uh, seen um, investors and clients who will have a, a wealthy uncle here in America who lend them the five hundred thousand dollars to do the project, or another investor who from China had been moving funds over slowly, slowly, year by year for the last you know five to ten years from their. Uh, you know, profits from their real estate sales in China, and they had the funds already here in the United States. So mm-hmm. it doesn't say anywhere in the policy manual that uh, American funds uh, can't be used for the EB-5 cash or capital needed for the project, nor does it say that an investor's funds have to, in fact, the path has to sh- be shown that it's coming at the time of the investment that comes from abroad directly into the United States. So there really is a whole lot of latitude there. The fact that now the John case has been won and there's no longer this requirement of security, I think there's going to be be a lot more creative approaches towards funding the um, investment amounts.
2: Yeah, Matt, I, I, that, that, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think, you know, you're you're ready to join in competition with us to be the next litigator for the next case. <laughs> because that, that's, I mean, you're right that the regulation, it's actually interesting because the original proposed regulations had a requirement that the funds come from abroad. And if they ultimately scrapped that from the final regulation, because they found that there was no congressional authority for it in the statute. And so that 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 is clear. And, you know, the government tried to make one, that argument, that policy argument is like, well, if we apply this loan proceeds rule, then it's going to encourage investors to bring money from outside of the United States rather than get it to borrow it from within the United States. The agency itself rejected that position as part of commentary to the final regulations. So as long as it's the investor's capital that's being invested, it doesn't matter whether or not the funds under the current framework. As far as we know, under the current interpretation, it doesn't matter if the funds come from within or without the email. well
0: tell me, your firm KKTMP partners are really top litigators in the EV five space. And you're probably seeing the cutting edge cases coming to the fore. And with this whole sunset of the E B five program and there being tens of billions of dollars that are in limbo right now. Are you seeing any movement yet uh, for class actions against um, this current uh, sunset or anything that's being done to push Congress or the USAS to give clarity to what's happening with the regional center program?
2: So there's certainly been a lot of policy movement to push Congress to, to pass something. I think, you know, there's there's a trade-off, as we understand it, there's a trade-off within the industry between pushing for another temporary fix and trying to wait so that there's enough consensus for a broader push forward. So The the program is no longer subject to these sort of to bickering between senators or the whims of Congress that uh, have become increasingly hard to predict so that, you know, it, it may be worth holding off for a few more months if there's going to be a permanent solution. But I think what is clear is that the investors, there's there's many, many investors who are suffering. Because of this lapse in statutory authority. You know, there's investors with approved I 526s that have been waiting years to immigrate. You know, there are investors that have pending I 526s that are now going to be consigned to sitting, doing nothing for as long as Congress continues to twiddle its thumbs. So there's definitely a need for something to get enacted sooner rather than later. Hopefully that will be broad-based reform that's acceptable to investors and to regional centers, et cetera. But if not, there's, I think, a pressing need for something to be enacted to at least continue the program so that the investors who are uh, have been waiting for uh, in their turn in line for a long time have a chance.
0: We had this interview with Michael Goldberg. I think you listened to that. And his job is really cleaning up um, the messes from the bad actors. But I see what the beauty of what you and your team of even five superheroes in your firm have accomplished is really you're defending the underdogs. You're helping the good guys, these foreign investors who really went through all the process in good faith, had legal source of funds, and only because of an arbitrary interpretation or reinterpretation of a policy, were really um, at a loss. Kudos to you and team who are out defending the underdogs who don't necessarily have that muscle to stand up for what is right when uh, they're being wrong. So I want to thank you and and your team for doing that. Where is the future for the program? Do you think that um, we're going to continue to see arbitrary reinterpretation of the of the policy, by USCIS as they really try to curb abuses in the program? Or do you think that it's really just up to sole actors and it was really nothing even calculated? It was just, you know, something internal? I guess I'm going back to that psychology of of the people versus the policy. And can we expect that there's always going to be this intimation between correct policy and then incorrect reinterpretation and then federal uh, lawsuits in order to clarify things? You know, the the dialectics are always good in in Mm -hmm. coming to the truth. But uh, ultimately, why does this have to be such a, a sticky subject for EB-5? When really oh, there are so many good actors trying to do good things here, it's a win-win yeah. for for these international businessmen and women, and it's also a win-win for for the U.S. economy.
2: Realistically, I expect that there will be litigation on discrete issues for the foreseeable future in EB-5, and I think part of the reason for that is just the the complications that the agency has added to what what is really a basic law. You know, I think I, I mentioned earlier in the in our in our discussion that there's really only two two core requirements. Requirements, but now there's hundreds of pages of not only regulations, but also policy, presidential decisions, as well as now the policy manual, and then all of the kind of unwritten rules that the agency applies um, in, in cases. I, I suspect that there will, will continue to be disputes on key issues and that ultimately in many of those cases, litigation is going to be the only way to correct the agency's errors on some of these issues. And I think another a, a big one now that's also related to source of funds, the capital investment requirement is this issue of currency swaps. Been, there's been a lot of movement in the past few years over investors that exchange their money through third-party currency swaps. For many, many years, USCIS treated those without really questioning the source of funds of the exchanger of the currency, and now there's been a lot of movement towards interrogating you know, the, the exchanger, not the investor. And so there is, in fact, litigation now over that issue. With all of the extra requirements that have been added, there's there's that many more permutations and combinations of potential issues that can come up. And the stakes are so high. I mean, frankly, there's, there's huge investments involved here and that there's people's lives, people's dreams to immigrate to the United States that are on the line. And I think people will continue to fight for their rights when they've been wrongly denied.
0: Beautiful, amazing. What you're describing with this currency swap issues, there are countries like Vietnam, where it's very difficult for the fund to come out so that these third-party companies which will do the the swap for them to have the funds come out of vietnam to a third party let's say in australia as long as the path is clear we were filing investors petitions with such a path and now USCS is putting greater scrutiny on the company itself and, and where are the proof of the legal source of funds of those currencies that are being swapped so you're right you know every time there's a one of these conference calls we all scramble to figure out you know what to do next whether it be redeployment whether it be of security for the loans, whether all these definitions, which if they were clearer in the policy book, it would make everyone's life easier. But we're constantly looking at the RFEs to understand, you know, what is the mindset of the of the USAS and, and how do we, we deal with that accordingly? EB5 should be a very straightforward system, as you mentioned. The investors come in with legal source of funds. They invested in a project which creates 10 new jobs for the JCE. And then they get that credit so that they can achieve the immigration requirements. Now with this uh, we call it the sunset of the of the research, Center program, everyone's waiting on, on eggshells to find out how that's going to go. And I think within the next uh, few weeks, hopefully we're going to hear some, some good news. But everybody would love to have you know greater clarity in the policy manual. I expect Ed and your team of superheroes are going to be very, very busy uh, as all of this policy gets clarified. Tell me, before we finish, I want to ask you, what do you think is the most pressing need or the, the hottest topic in, in litigation right now in the EB-5 space, aside from the currency swap issue? Is there anything else that you think is a really, really hot topic that needs? to be clarified or there's going to need some litigation fast?
2: Yeah, no, I I think there is. I think it's related to the the issues that you discussed with Michael Goldberg um, on one of the earlier podcasts. But I think another major theme and another major issue that's been, been big in the EB-5 arena is what happens when there's fraud? Should the investors that have been victimized by a, by a bad actor, suffer immigration consequences when a good actor then steps in, like a receiver, like a Michael Goldberg, or like there's been other cases where receivers have been appointed by courts and the project has been turned around and ultimately generates the jobs required. And USCIS has taken a very hardline position in many of these cases. In, in which they they view this requirement of no of at risk. You mentioned earlier. There's one. There's a regulation that requires that the funds be placed at risk for the purpose of generating a return on the investment. And somehow, in USCIS's mind, funds are not at risk if they're stolen by a third party actor. To go back to what I mentioned earlier in terms of plain text and what the regulations say, frankly, that makes no sense as a matter of textual interpretation of a regulation. Funds, the fact that they can be stolen by a bad third party actor demonstrates that the funds are at risk. It doesn't negate the fact that they're at risk. And so I think that is going to be a major issue in litigation, in advocacy, and in ultimately, it may have to be resolved by the federal courts. But hopefully, USCIS will come around to its senses, as it has in a few cases. There's been a few cases where there have been receivers and white knights that have come come in and rescued a project, and they've approved cases. But it seems to be an issue that's working its way through the agency, and hopefully, the agency will come to the right outcome there. But if they don't, I suspect the litigation on that issue.
0: And you're hired. <laughs> a very good <laughs> argument for the point that, uh, you know, there's no better definition or, or demonstration of at risk when there's been a situation like that. Tell me, Ed, you and your team, Ira and John, and everybody at your firm who, who attested that you're the EB5 superhero. Beyond being superheroes, they are also modest superheroes. So I'm very impressed. Right. I,
2: it may be more of the, uh, the sidekick than the superhero, but uh, I think um, we're best when there's a complicated case. We do all kinds of EB5 work. We uh, represent individual investors. But I think our strength really lies is in when there's a complicated issue and there's a high stakes issue, we can. And we have experience with EB-5 and with litigation that, that allows us to view the case from the, the ultimate perspective of litigation, even if it doesn't ultimately end up there. I, mean, I think there's a lot of cases where investors or regional centers or NCEs can benefit from evaluating the situation. And if there are some cases when the situation is just too far gone, it can't be rescued to know that. But if, if there are solutions, then to kind of come up with them and I think litigation is a powerful tool in, in the toolbox for EB-5 advocacy and advocating for the interests of investors and regional centers. So and our firm has litigated a number of cases. So we kind of have a sense of how that process can play out. We're here to help.
0: EB5 superhero, Ed Ramos, KKTMP Partners. We are so proud of all the good things you're doing for America, for the American dream, for the investors and for the underdogs out there who need your help. So thank you. Keep going, fighting the good fight, and upward and onward. We look forward to hearing great things from you going forward.
2: Thanks so much, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day.
0: That's a wrap. Ed Ramos and other EB5 superheroes like him are the industry's best and brightest I who are flying onward and upward to bring out the best in EB-5. Join me on the next episode to meet the next EB-5 superhero. Have a great
1: day. Thank you for listening to the EB-5 Superheroes Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the good guys and good gals who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. To access today's show notes, ask Matt a question, or suggest an EB-5 superhero to be featured on the show, visit EB5Superheroes.com